This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at slategist.com. It's Friday, September 25th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm kicked off Twitter. I don't know why. I swear, I never liked anything Eric Trump tweeted at me. I have a sixth sense for shady Macedonian teens honed during my misspent youth in Astoria poker dens. If I ever forwarded content created by the GRU, I thought it was just quoting the guy from Minions. You know, Gru. Same thing with Cozy Bear. That's like Paddington, right? And Fancy Bear. That must mean Smokey. That bear wears pants. I didn't know. Actually, there's apparently a Twitter bug. It has nothing to do with me. A number of accounts were locked, and I guess they're coming back, but they definitely have not told me when. So I have gone Twitter dry. I did not choose Twitter abstinence, but have had Twitter abstinence thrust upon me. At first, I was worried. Twitter is a way to connect. And then I was concerned because I use Twitter for work. But then I settled in and I waited to see what would happen if I couldn't tweet. And you know what I realized? I realized I wasn't operating Twitter. Twitter was operating me. Oh, the freedom is a sentiment that you would expect in an anecdote like this. That I didn't want it, but then it happened and it's great. And now I smell daffodils when traipsing down the meadow. No, no. That's the surprise twist, right? Such a surprise that you knew it was coming, just like when they bring the first guy in for questioning in the first 15 minutes of a law and order. That guy's never the real murderer, okay? Not a twist. Just like going without Twitter has been good for me. Not a twist, because I like Twitter, all right? I could still follow people. It's true. I could use the Slate Gist account, which I have done to some extent, but I don't want to sully it with my nonsense. I also have this burner account named after an 18th century English nobleman who influenced the founding fathers. But you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to tweet. And when you have seven followers, you're not tweeting. You're tweeting into the wind. Because damn it, I had insights. I had observations. I had things to say about that underwater beaver who's been going around. I have ready to go clips from an old hearing where Amy Coney Barrett says that as a trial judge, she wouldn't sentence someone to death and would have to recuse herself on a death penalty case. But as an appellate judge, she has no problem with death penalty cases. You know, maybe she has some problem, like she'd, you know, do some soul searching and say some Hail Marys. But yeah, in general, though thou shalt not kill is right there in the Bible, she found a moral difference between thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not overturn a lower court's decision to kill. What I'm saying is I could have tweeted that out. It could have been a tweet stream, a tweet storm. There would have been links to C-SPAN. Maybe someone like James Fallows would have said, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know it. Dan Diamond from Politico, just people who follow me. You know, Ben Wittes would say, oh, who knew about this hearing? I'd feel good about myself. Or local news, right? There was a picture of de Blasio squatting to give a little 
little kid a high five, and I had some joke about him training in Krav Maga to adopt a defensive crouch, you know, because everyone hates de Blasio. And then Corey Johnson, who's the speaker of the New York City Council, he announced he was dropping out of the mayor race. And I had a line about how he was being very mayoral because he was technically pre-furloughing, right? It's very local, but still, Ozzie Pabora or Jody Avergan, they'd have liked it. And that's all I care about. I would feel like I made a difference. So Twitter gets a lot of crap and Twitter deserves a lot of crap. But there's a way to use it that brings pleasure to the tweeter, the tweetee, and most importantly of all, Jack Dorsey. Question, would I trade scrapping Twitter, scrapping the fun and the usefulness of the medium in exchange for eliminating from the playing field what it also represents, a force multiplier in the disinformation wars? Well, guess what? I don't have to ponder that because I've been robbed of Twitter and yet still Twitter is spewing all those Jack Posobiec crap tweets to his million followers. A million followers for that guy. And he's still there and I'm not. There is no justice, which is exactly what Viscount Bolingbroke found upon being exiled to France after the Jacobite rebellion. Ah, well, there's always Google plus circles. What? On the show today, the love of Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron's life. Bet you thought I was going to say Mitch McConnell. No, I'm talking about his wife and the other wives like her. But first, the Comey Rule is a two-part series airing this weekend on Showtime. It's a dramatization, but a faithful one to the experience of former FBI Chief Jim Comey. The title character, Comey, not the rule, is played by Jeff Daniels, and the director is Billy Ray, and both of those gentlemen join me next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You could argue that the personal morality of James Comey is as consequential as the personal morality of any person in history. And the reason I say that is because he was at a fulcrum. He was at a decision point, And it really could have gone either way, whether he disclosed or did not disclose the results of the FBI investigation into Hillary Clinton. And the results of his disclosure, which are motivated by reasons that we really begin to understand in the new Showtime production, The Comey Rule, the consequences of that decision, well, we're living with it today. It was indeed world-changing. And that is one of the great things about this new two-part Showtime series. It makes you understand who the person was. And from that point of understanding, we begin maybe to understand the world-shaping world events that occurred thereafter. The director of The Comey Rule and the star who played Jim Comey, Billy Ray and Jeff Daniels are here with me. Guys, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having us. Very welcome. So Jeff, I'll start with you. Before the election, what was your knowledge, understanding, and how much did you follow this investigation that you're portraying on screen? I was pretty tuned in to uh, politically. I was, you know, devouring cable news on a nightly basis. 
And I, I probably, when, when the, the investigation reopened in October 2016 into Hillary's emails, I, I don't remember, but I'm probably one of those guys going, what, what is he thinking? What, are you mm-hmm. kidding me? And, and, and you're right. This, this, this film shows what Jim Comey was thinking. And, and I didn't know anything uh, except what I could pull off of social media, which apparently is where we go now. But there's more there, and this film shows that. And at least it puts you in Jim Comey's shoes a little bit. You get to help decide what you would have done if now that you know everything he was facing. And Billy's script and Jim's story, it puts him between a rock and a hard place time and time and time again. I learned a lot playing it. I know that. Billy, same question to you. Did you form an opinion of Comey during the election or maybe when the book that was his book that you optioned into this project? Maybe you read that book early on and maybe your impression changed. But just tell me before you put pen to script, what were your thoughts on Comey the person? Well, during 2016, I hated him. I, like many Americans, believed that he had tipped the election to uh, Donald Trump. It turns out I was mistaken the deciding factor in that election by far uh, was the Russians. And I've gotten that from inside the intel community all the way up to uh, James Clapper himself, who confirmed it. But that said, like most people, I was on the outside looking in and, you know, watching uh, CNN, like just about everybody else, and assuming that James Comey had thrown the election, uh, you know, inadvertently to Donald Trump. So I had very, very strong feelings about that. And then when I was offered the chance to adapt this book and got to know the circumstances better and got to understand that we had an opportunity to say to America and more broadly the world, okay, be Jim Comey for five minutes. Here are the factors. Here are the facts. Here are the constraints. Here are the pressures. Here's the political reality. What would you have done? I I thought that was an incredible opportunity uh, for us as storytellers. And then you mix in there, okay, here's who Jim Comey is, here are the things he values, here are the things that he believes, here are the things he knows to be true, and here are the things that he's guessing. And all of that impacts the way he makes decisions. Here are the people around him, here is his family. All of a sudden, it becomes the ingredients for this very compelling, harrowing, powerful, and oddly hopeful story. And that's... uh, that's what you are shooting for. Then you add in the element of a brilliant cast led by Jeff Daniels, who can articulate that and actually make it real. And then you get everything, which is why I'm so proud of the work we did. You know, Jeff, I've always really been fascinated with two aspects of acting. One is just the opportunity to memorize these great words. And like, if I could walk around being able to spout Shakespeare, I'd consider it a superpower. But the other is the ability uh, and opportunity to understand psychology, to really crawl inside someone's skin and figure out how they see the world. Is that a big driver for you? Yeah, it's, it's adult make-believe when you break it down we get to inhabit and you take it on a deeper level. You get to inhabit someone like Jim, Jim Comey. And how do you do that? It, it, it you, 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 I, my little key thought is you, you get, you get what he's thinking. You get what he believes in. You, you add in what his politics are, what his sense of humor is, what he likes, what he doesn't like his strengths, his weaknesses, every single character you approach like that so that you can kind of become them. And that's, that's the fun. That's, I keep telling young actors, that's where the fun is. 
It isn't in looking pretty for a close-up. The fun is getting to the end of a take, and this happened a lot on Comey, and not remembering what you did. And and that's that's because you were so in the moment and so riding him like like a like a wave. And then they said cut, and you go, What happened? Billy? He goes, Yeah, we got it. Good, good. Whatever you got. You know, that's the that's where the fun is. So when you are tell me about your interaction with Comey. Do you did you actually um or was this literal literally optioned from his memoir, therefore he was paid? And did he have any say in uh how this was portrayed on screen? Only to the extent that he had writer approval. In other words, if if he didn't want me to be the one adapting it, uh, I wouldn't have gotten this job. But that said, he and I had long talks. He knew exactly how I felt about him, and he knew exactly how I felt about some of the decisions he had made. And he uh, he picked me anyway, and then made himself a resource to me, so that uh, if I had questions, you know, he would give me answers. Uh, to his credit, he never manipulated me. He never tried to spin me. He never tried to convince me that he was a saint. He just answered my questions. Okay. So what about casting Jeff Daniels? And I would have done it too, but here's the thing. When you do that, you're evoking everyone's he's played and he's played George Washington, right? And he's played the hero of Gettysburg. And he's, he just is filled with all, like Jimmy Stewart, who's mentioned, or Tom Hanks or Gregory Peck, right? He's filled with all these characters that represent things like rectitude and judgment and decency and humanity. So when you do that, are you signing up for those traits, you know, really shining through more so than you would if there was another actor who existed in more of a liminal gray area in the audience's mind? Uh, there were a couple boxes that we had to check when we considered uh, who was the right person to play Comey. First, they had to be a spectacular actor. Okay, so that one's covered. Second, they have to walk into this bringing an enormous amount of credibility because Comey is such a polarizing figure. I wanted someone that people like and trust because I felt uh, I didn't want to have to overcome anything that the actor might, brought, might bring in as baggage. Third, they had to have a certain level of physicality. Uh, you can't hire someone who's 5'10 to play 6'8". can't do that. And then fourth, and perhaps as important as the other three, I needed an actor with tremendous confidence in their own ability because if this is not the bells and whistles part of our show, Trump is. Trump gets all the really crazy theatrical stuff to say. And so I needed our Comey to have the confidence to trust that his own stillness and his own quiet would be as powerful as Trump's huge speeches. Um, so Jeff delivers all four of those things. He was always our first choice, and uh, we were very, very lucky to get him. Right. Creating a quiet or subtle gravity around him. Jeff, what do you think of that? A lot of compliments there, but do you have anything to say about that assessment? Uh, very kind. Um, I, from day one, and Billy and I talked about this, and it, 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 I said, we need great actors around me. And, 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 and yeah, there are, there are a lot of Hollywood movies where the stars going, get me mediocre people around me so that I look better. It's true. <laughs> yeah. Or and shorter if, people too. <laughs> or, or for if Martin shorts in your movie and then you go to the director and tell, tell Marty to calm it down. Will you, you know, I I've heard those stories. I happen to love Martin short. I'm always the guy I did it with Jim Carrey on dumb and dumber. I said, Jim, I want you to be great. 
What do you need to be great? How can I help? You know, it's just a confidence of being able to hold up your end of the scene. That's all it is. But we're in this together. And so when Brendan walks in as Trump, uh, God, we're, we're dead in the water if we don't have a great Trump. The project doesn't work if we don't have a great Trump. And so, yes, please bring it, bring it, bring it. And he did. He not only brought it on the day, but the work that Brendan put in, everybody in the cast put in, because there were mountains of dialogue for everybody and research and all that. But the work and the preparation that these bona fide capital A actors brought, that's what makes it look easy is all that hard work. That cliche is true, but it is never more true than when you're sitting on a set and you need a great Trump. So Bill, you've done a few of these movies that are based on a real person, usually a real person, real events. This maybe has more of a sprawling set of events versus something like uh, Shattered Glass or you wrote the screenplay to Jewel, where it's the person in the middle of it that where considering. So was that an extra, but let's also note that this is a two-part longer series, so it accommodated all that. Was that a little bit more of a challenge or different from what you've done, that you are trying to explain the person, but also really trying to put forward very complicated series of things that happen? Uh, As Jeff can tell you, because he's written 18 plays, writing is always hard. I've never written a script that was easy. You know, they're all kind of a bloodletting in their own way. The biggest challenges here had to do with assimilating a massive amount of information and staying disciplined about what the spine of our story was. You could turn any story that involves Donald Trump into an octopus that goes in eight different directions. And our story was just about how heartbreaking it is to be a public servant today. That's all we were telling. And anything that didn't stick to the spine of that story had to fall out. So, the, you know, uh, Faulkner once said, in writing, you must murder your darlings. I had a lot of darlings that, that wound up not making it into the final script because as compelling as they were, as interesting as they were, and as noteworthy as they were, they didn't help me tell the story of a love story between a man and an institution. So one criticism of Comey from people who have read the book and aren't even motivated by partisan loathing is that he has a streak that a critic would call a holier than thou streak. So was the, maybe that's a challenge to um, somehow acknowledge that. Is there a way, Billy, for you to, and Jeff, for you to portray it, where you present what could be um, perceived as holier than thou behavior and you let the audience say, okay, I can see that it could come off this way, but you're also showing what the motivations are and how it's actually not just someone being filled with their own rectitude. I I can understand how you can portray the corrective, but can you also get in there the idea that, yeah, this could be off-putting? Well, for me, I thought it was very important to hang a lantern on that instantly. And so the very first thing you see in our show is news footage of people unloading on James Comey. And the second thing you see is Rod Rosenstein, who is not a fan of James Comey serving as narrator. I wanted to signal to the audience instantly, I know how people feel about James Comey. And I know that sometimes they don't know how to feel 
about James Comey. And I, I surround James Comey in the story with people who are questioning his ego, including Comey himself. Um, he literally says to his wife, do you ever worry about my ego? There are lots of, of, of references in the series to people who are holding up a mirror to him and making him question himself, which I think is something that great leaders welcome. Jim Comey is one of them, and bad leaders reject. You can fill in the blanks on that one. I think that Comey, he has a moral rudder that makes his life both tougher and, and much clearer at the same time. It makes his life clearer because he always knows what to do. It makes his life tougher because often what he has to do is really difficult. Uh, but that rudder and his faith in it never wavers. And I think that's a really interesting character. Yeah, I, I, I'd, I'd agree. I'd agree with that, that the moral rudder of it. I, I, I absolutely uh, makes it easier in some ways because it's justice, it's the integrity of the FBI, and it's facts and truth and rule of law. So that's simple. That's easy. Uh, the difficulty is in when you you sit down with someone who's going, yeah, but politically speaking, can we look at it politically for just a second? No, I can't do that. I'm an apolitical public servant. And you know what? That There's a bigger thing here than us. And, and I think Jim might have gotten caught with uh, my truth is bigger than your truth. My belief in the rule of law is obviously bigger than yours, or you wouldn't be asking me to do what you're asking me to do. And I can easily see how someone who gets rejected like that might think self-righteous, you know, uh, egomaniac. I, I can see that. I, I didn't find that. I, I don't think Billy wrote that in. I, I, for me, it was Jim always trying to stick to the rule of law unless he could be, you know, argued off of that. And the rule of law, the right thing to do is this, and it's hard as hell. And I will also say just to amplify that, in a in a performance that is loaded with you know favorite moments for me, I think my very very favorite moment of Jeff's of Jeff's performance is the scene at the end of night one where he's having an argument with Patrice, where where she is saying to him just let it go, and he says to her you know I can take the whole world being mad at me I really can, but not you. That to me summed up the entire thing. Like he knew the world would be mad at him and it really was fine. But, but that one moment with his wife was the one that was sort of taking the life out of him. That's not a guy with a huge ego. That, that's a guy with a huge soul. And that's what Jeff was playing. The director, Billy Ray, the actor, Jeff Daniels, they crafted this Showtime two-part series called The Comey Rule. It debuts September 27th. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. And now the spiel. Daniel Cameron, the attorney general of Kentucky, is the official who presented evidence to the grand jury considering indictments of the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor. When those indictments did not come, except for a class D felony for one of the officers of, for wanton endangerment, Daniel Cameron became a very unpopular man with most black or progressive or black and progressive people in America. I understand that as a black man. How painful this is. Black and progressive people in Kentucky 
had largely already arrived at the conclusion that Daniel Cameron wasn't best representing their interests. They weren't discovering him anew. They knew Cameron was a mentee of Mitch McConnell. They also knew he spoke at last month's Republican National Convention. Good evening. My name is Daniel Cameron. I'm 34 years old and the first African-American attorney general in Kentucky history. It is an honor to be with you as a proud Republican and supporter of Donald J. Trump. Daniel Cameron now is an extremely unpopular figure on the left. Doreen St. Felix, a writer for The New Yorker, tweeted after his press conference, Daniel Cameron is a bitch. Tamika Mallory, an activist who led the Women's March, had this to say. That is who you are, Daniel Cameron. You are a coward. You are a sellout, and you were used by the system to harm your own mama, your own black mama. We have no respect for you, no respect for your black skin, because all of our skin folk ain't our kin folk, and you do not belong to black people at all. So the animosity towards Cameron runs deep. And in this moment of heightened emotions, people can and are criticizing him for his pedigree, his politics, his prosecutorial choices, his wife. His wife? Yes. Daniel Cameron was married to a 27-year-old woman named Mackenzie Evans, now Mackenzie Cameron, last month. And the new Mrs. Cameron is a white woman. To which I say, and probably you do too, so what? Who cares? That's fine. There couldn't be less that I need to comment on or that you need me to comment on. But on Twitter, on Black Twitter, certainly on in conversations taking place, there was condemnation. It was fierce. And this condemnation went, and I've seen this before, and probably you have too, Black Republican, a white wife, things like typical figures, always the case. To which I say, Something like, first of all, come on, lay, lay off, you know, people and their spouses. Let's not draw too many conclusions or cast too many stones, please. But I did wonder, is it true? Is it actually so typical for a black Republican man to marry a white woman? I know, I know. Why am I asking? I'm just curious. And maybe so are you. I just want the actual statistics. I think an actual quantification is better than people saying, always the case and other people believing them or disbelieving them. Why don't we have the actual facts? I mean, when we think of prominent examples, and maybe this is skewing our mental picture, maybe we think of Clarence Thomas and his wife, Ginny, who is white. Then again, we could think of Ben Carson, his wife, Candy, who's African-American. So which one, which one of these two prominent black men in the federal government who you thought of, maybe that says something about your cognitive bias. But would it be interesting or useful were this phenomenon to be documented, perhaps even to disprove it. So, I attempted this. Come with me, if you will. So as a baseline, according to a Pew analysis of the American Community Study, in 2015, 17% of all married couples were intermarried couples. And to those married to someone of a different race, 7% were black men married to white women. There's another word for this, exogamy. Oh God, let's, let's not say that. None of the technical talk is making me feel a little less weird about the area of study, but the facts demand it. I hope you take my inquiry and finding without too much judgment. So, the most notable, though predictable, aspect of analyzing the marriage patterns of black Republican men is that there are so few black Republican men. I wanted to include politicians because this is who the charge is lobbed at. Black Republican male politicians often marry white wives, so the thought goes 
I found a list of black Republican elected officials. I'm not talking about just maybe famous people who may be black and call themselves Republican. In other words, Charles Barkley is not making my study. So first I looked up Congress. There are zero married black Republicans in the Senate. There are zero married black Republicans in the House. In fact, Tim Scott and Will Hurd, that's all of the people I'm talking about. They have no wives. So then I looked towards the states. Wikipedia has a list of African-American Republicans, which I acknowledge might not be the definitive list of all African-American Republicans. There are 7,383 state legislators. Of them, I could find six black Republican men. We have Arizona Rep. Walter Blackman. Yeah, I know. He is married to a white woman. We have Peter Bulware, who is a former NFL player. He's a great player. He's in the Florida State House. He is married to a black woman. His fellow black Republican in the Florida legislature, Mike Hill, has a white wife. Texas's James E. White's wife is a white woman. Alaska Senator David Wilson's wife, Alita is by appearances white. Oh, I should also say this. I could be wrong about some of these people. I'm just going by pictures that I could find on the internet, on official photos, uh, in some cases on Facebook. There's also Vermont rep Randy Brock, who Wikipedia says is still in office, but his official page on the state house site lists only as going up to 2018. But you know, he is a mainstay of Vermont politics. He was the GOP nominee for governor eight years ago, lieutenant governor four years ago. He, a black man, has a white wife, The couple reportedly met at a polygraph convention. That's the truth. Of the other black officials elected to statewide office in any capacity within the last decade, there are another five black Republican men. Texas's Michael Williams and current Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, Boyd Rutherford, have black wives or not white wives. Again, going by looks. Cameron, who we talked about, recent Indiana auditor Dwayne Sawyer and current Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill, black men married to white women. So we have a sample size of 11. It's not super big, but that's how few black Republican men there are. And of those 11 current state legislators or current or very recent statewide elected officials, eight of them are married to a white woman. Again, there might be some that I or Wikipedia do not account for. I'm giving all the caveats. Maybe my crude analysis of the race of people was incorrect. But I found that there is a reason to give credence to the idea that black elected officials, black male Republican elected officials, disproportionately are likely to be married to a white woman. More than just disproportionately, they're usually married to white women. Why? Not for me to say. I might suggest that self-identified Republicans might travel in Republican circles, and black women are extremely unlikely to be Republican. So if you're a black male Republican, how many people are you going to meet along the way? Or, I don't know, some other reason. Again, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't matter so much the why. It's not for me to say the why. I'm really not even trying to offer analysis beyond the facts. But I think I think the facts are kind of interesting. And I know there's a lot of what abouts. Like, what about Bill de Blasio? What about Doug Emhoff? That's Kamala Harris's husband. Yes, of course, of course. There are many other, what about other races? What about gay couples? Yes, all about that. Not offering judgment, not offering comment, definitely not criticizing or castigating. All I want to do is provide a little bit of fact to go with the speculation. Huh, isn't it always the case? Yup, it often is the case. And that was my sole motivation. 
and I've completed the task. Well, I also have another motivation that I should disclose. And it is this one day and one day soon, I hope to find myself a white wife. I actually have a specific one in mind. I'd like to also tell you that we met via an online dating app, which when you think about it, is the opposite of a polygraph convention. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the GIST producer. She can't quite put her finger on her discomfort with the preceding segment, but thankfully now it's over. Daniel Schrader, GIST producer, is on Twitter where he tweets as a 19th century baron by the name of Von Fonsi Ponce. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The phrase, it's your funeral, might have passed between us today. The gist, Amy Coney Barrett is the seventh child of a seventh child, which I'm sure will fascinate Trump, who will say, I happen to be the fifth child, but I only have four children, and everyone will be too embarrassed to bring up Tiffany. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening.